Now, last week I talked about family, and I do have to say one thing. Someone sent me a note after last Sunday. It was very disturbing. They said they came into church, sat down, and someone came to them and says, excuse me, you're in my seat. Yeah, and um, asked them to move because they've been here longer and been more faithful. And I just want to let you know that I look all around this room. There's not a single name on any chair in this place. That, that when you come in, um, be gracious enough. If someone's, I know we like our familiar seats. We have, even for me, I like sitting down there. If someone's in my seat, I just find another seat. So please do that. Uh, if, if I'd visit a church and that's how I'd be treated, I would never go back. You know, because if that's the culture of the church, that this, that's an entitlement culture, we don't do that. Um, Jesus would give up his seat for someone else. We ought to do the same. So let's do that, okay? I was reading a story that happened uh, last month up in Oregon. A six-year-old boy, or six-month-old boy was found strapped to a stroller in a hotel room. He'd been there for several days. He was barely alive because his mother had, had died of a drug overdose. And by the time they got to this little boy, he was barely responsive. But fortunately, they got him just in time that by uh, feeding him, giving him nourishment and liquids, he's come back. He's, he's going to survive. But what a tragic thing. Uh, what parent would leave their child unattended? Who would neglect their own son? Who would abandon them? Well, that's really the theme of the, today of why would God abandon his son on the cross? Being abandoned is such a painful thing. When someone that loves you deserts you. I mean, I think of employees who've actually said in surveys they'd rather be corrected by their boss than ignored as a non-factor. You'd rather be hated, at least you're noticed, than to be treated as nothing. Now, when we see this when athletes trade teams, like they go from a, a, one team to another when they revisit their old venue, like when Brett Favre came back to Lambeau Field in purple, like, ooh, that was a bad day. Uh, he, he comes in as a Minnesota Viking quarterback, and there was booze everywhere. Now, there's booze everywhere always at Green Bay, uh, but these are different kind of, <laughs> these are the audible booze. And you know what? If they really wanted to punish Brett Favre, they should have just remained silent. Yep. Like, we don't care. Yep. No, but they cared enough to, to get riled up about him, and now they love him because he's a, he's a Hall of Famer and all that. So, that, the pain, and that's what Jesus experiences on the cross, an incredible pain of desertion. We're going through these last statements that Jesus made from the cross over a period of just a few hours, seven powerful statements. And the one we're looking at today is the fourth statement. It's found in Mark's gospel and Matthew's. If you have a Bible, you can follow along with us. Here's how Matthew says it. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Thursday night, Jesus had his last meal with his disciples. And after that, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. While he was praying in the dark of the night, the authorities came and arrested him. All through the night, he was meeting with Jewish authorities. Then in the morning with Pilate and then back to the Jewish authorities and back to Pilate. And finally, he was crucified that morning between two thieves on a hill. But he's there for a few hours and then noon comes. From noon to three, the sky turns dark. Jesus experiencing something he's never experienced before. And you have to wonder, as Matthew's writing his gospel, he's, he's tracing all these um, scriptures from the Old Testament. They say, Jesus truly is the Messiah. This is him. And if he truly is the Messiah, why would God abandon him on the cross? Why would he leave him there to suffer? What parent would stand helpless by their own child when they suffer? We would never do that, would we? No, but we don't love people like God does. It was an act of love that God allowed his own son to suffer 
Because here's what happened on the cross. Jesus was forsaken, so we would never be. Jesus was forsaken, so we would never be forsaken. And let me tell you why. Two big reasons. Number one, Jesus was forsaken because of us. He was not forsaken because of anything he had done. He'd always been inseparably connected to his father, but sin caused a fracture. It always does that. Sin caused a fracture. Sin breaks relationships. Uh, Jesus existed before his birth. You might remember that. Jesus existed before he was born. He wasn't called Jesus. John calls him the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus existed at the beginning of creation. He's always existed in eternity. He and the Father were one. And so when Jesus took on human form, he was God's presence on earth. And when people looked at Jesus, they saw the Father. Jesus said, you want to know what the Father's like? Look at me. And he said, how you treat me is how you treat the Father. Jesus says in John chapter 8, he, has sent, or, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. At times, Jesus would go off into the hills. He would pray. He would have conversations, times of prayer with his heavenly father. He said he didn't do anything that his heavenly father didn't instruct him on, that everything his father knew he made known to him. Jesus said the father actually lived in him in a very powerful way. And near the end of this ministry, Jesus tells his disciples, I, am, I came from the father and I now am going back to the father. I mean, he and the father are intimately tied. Now, you could add the Holy Spirit in there too, father, son, Holy Spirit just inseparably connected, the three in one. There's a mystery in the Trinity. We don't understand it all, but they are inseparable. But then sin entered the picture. Sin, as I said, separates. It fractures relationships. Sin in the presence of God is like darkness in the presence of light. They, can't, they cannot coexist. Habakkuk writes in the Old Testament, you, speaking of God, you who are of pure eyes then to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God cannot look at wrong. He cannot tolerate sin. He has to deal with sin. And so he deals with it on his son who's hanging on a cross. But it's a new experience for Jesus. He'd never, ever sinned before and therefore never experienced separation. But it all changed at the cross. Jesus was introduced to the pain of sin. It says in Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So for this brief period of time, Jesus is experiencing the pain and separation that sin causes. Now, this was foretold in Scripture. Because when Jesus is, is hanging there, he utters this cry. Now, up to this point, all the three statements Jesus makes have been very tender, compassionate. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Woman, this is your son. Son, this is your mother. All tender words. This one's not tender. This one actually is a cry. It's, it's actually, in the Greek, a mega cry, a loud cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He just belts this out. He's crying out. And he's quoting Psalm 22. Psalm 22, a psalm written by David. Now, David, when he wrote the psalms, is writing about his own experiences. He was the king of Israel. He wrote it hundreds of years before this event. But as often is the case... Uh, there's a double meaning in Scripture, and this was one of those. Not only was David writing about himself, he did not realize it at the time, but he was writing about the ultimate king and how he would die on a cross for us. Here's the first verse of Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, and oh my God, why have you forsaken me? There it is, right there. Why are you so far fr from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jesus is so familiar with this psalm that he's going to see it played out in his own life. Now, if you'd actually go back and read Psalm 22, we won't read the whole of it, but I want to read you portions of it because it's so powerful. Like, jump down to verse 6. 
But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now, if you go into Matthew just a few verses earlier, the people that are gathered around Jesus says, well, he trusts in God. Let God save him. Again, this psalm is being played out right before Jesus' eyes. We jump down a few more verses. He says, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my mouth. You lay me in the dust of the earth. Again, this is being played out in, in Jesus' life. He's feeling like a worm. He feels worthless. He's, he, he says there are bulls of Bashan gathered around him. Now, what does that mean? In the Old Testament, when the Israelites went into the promised land, there was a group called the Ammonites who, um, who ruled over territory that was north and to the east. And so when they went into that, God says, I'll give the land to you. But when they went there, the king of the land, the king of Bashan, Og, uh, was very defiant. He would not yield to them. Now, Og... If you, if you look at the Old Testament, book of Deuteronomy says he was of the clan of the Rephaim. Rephaim was, a, was an ancient clan of people often seen as giants. I mean, big, big people. And it is believed that these people were, were somehow um, demon, kind of demonic people. People who were infused with something else that made them different. That's why they were so bizarre. I mean, they're not just six feet tall. This guy was 13 and a half feet tall. It says that he slept on a bed made of iron. And so when Jesus is, is, is thinking of this um, psalm and the bulls of Bashan gathered around him, he's not thinking of, of animals. He's thinking of the demonic spirits that have come around him to crush him. Satan and his horde of demonic spirits. In fact, if you remember how Peter describes Satan, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He says these are, these are ravenous lions. He's speaking of these demonic beings, very likely, that are gathered around him. He says, my bones are out of joint. When you're crucified, that happens. All the weight on your joints uh, spikes between his wrists and in his ankles. He's being pulled with all this weight. Yes, his bones are being pulled out of joint. Someone shared with me that a couple weeks ago in, a, in the message that I gave, I talked about the seed of the woman back in Genesis 3 where it says um, the, 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 the seed of the woman will, be, will experience a bruising of the heel by the serpent, but then he will crush the serpent's head. And he pointed out to me what the, what the phrase, the bruising of the heel, probably refers to. Think about this. I think it makes a lot of sense. When Jesus is on the cross, all of his weight is on one part of his body, his heel. It's on a little piece of wood nailed to the cross. If you can think of like a, an inch or two block. He's, he's hanging on a cross like this. His heels are on it. All of his weight, he can't, you can't extend yourself because there's no spring in the heel. And while he's hanging there for hours, his heel, his bruising. Well, that's what Satan did to Jesus. But, but in the resurrection, Jesus crushed his head. Okay? So, so his bones are being out of joint. He's being pulled bodily in different directions. And then it says they, they cast lots for his clothes. Well, that happened, right? The soldiers cast lots for Jesus' garments. Jesus knew this psalm so well that he's, he's probably playing this through his head. Like, God, just as you said, it's all playing out right before me. So let's go on. Um, Jesus knows how this ends. 
Because the psalm ends in a beautiful way, which I believe was in Jesus' mind as he even thought about the cross. Here's what David said at the end of that psalm. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And so this psalm that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, ends with praise to the God who will deliver him. And Jesus, as he's crying out, knows that God will deliver him. But it doesn't deny the fact that he is suffering this agony of separation right now. It was foretold in Scripture, but it was also illustrated in nature. Because for three hours, the sky turned black. Now, eclipses aren't miracles. They're, they're facts of nature. Whether it be a solar or lunar eclipse, those things happen. We've experienced them in our own lifetime when, when it can get darker. It doesn't get pitch black, but it gets darker in the middle of the day because the sun gets blocked out. That's what happened here. It was, it was an attention getter. And the reason it was a miracle is because this wasn't like a brief few minutes. This was three hours. So something very astounding happened. Now, for those who weren't at the crucifixion, Remember, this all happened very quickly, all through the night. It wasn't announced in the papers. People didn't know what was going on up on that hill. They didn't know that the itinerant preacher who went around healing people was being crucified. But they're out in the field plowing, and all of a sudden it gets dark, and they're going, what in the world's going on here? This is strange. This is really weird. And, and in those cultures, in fact, in many cultures today, when things like that in nature happen that are very unique, you think God's up to something. So God's up to something. He definitely is. And he's illustrating in nature what's happening in a spiritual realm. There is darkness invading this earth. Darkness is a picture of a life lived in sin. Jesus came to dispel the darkness. He said people love darkness rather than light. People who walk in darkness are blind. They stumble because they can't see the light of the truth. And so sin is often compared to darkness. When you live in sin, you live in darkness. But Satan and his influence is also compared to darkness too. Satan's kingdom is called the kingdom of darkness. Satan himself is the prince of darkness. And so when the chief priests, the temple officers, and the elders came to arrest Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told them, now is the hour of the power of darkness. The evil is happening right now. It is, it is evil's greatest hour. It's the hour of darkness. But there's also a sense in that darkness um, conveys that there's judgment coming. There's a lot of pictures in the Old Testament about dark clouds coming, the gloominess of the clouds. Uh, in the book of um, Zephaniah, it says the day of, of God's wrath is a day of darkness and gloom. And many believe that Amos actually prophesied about the crucifixion day, because here's what Amos writes. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, Sounds real, doesn't it? And darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will put sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son. God's one and only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. So darkness is prevailing on the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. It's a day of judgment of sin. It's a day of the, the hour of power of darkness. It is a display of the wrath of God, the judgment towards sin. All this is happening as Jesus is being cut off from the Father, experiencing separation from Father, but just for a short time, just for those few hours, he was forsaken for our sake. So that's what Jesus went through. He did it because of us, but we will never be forsaken because of Jesus. 
will never experience forsakenness when we follow Jesus, when we give our lives to him. God will never forsake us. Remember, sin separates you from God. But if sin's removed, the thing that separates you can't separate you anymore. Some of you may remember an old song we sang by Chris Tomlin, not that long ago, but you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, he's saying, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. See, on the cross, our sins were judged. They were atoned for, they were paid for, they were covered because Jesus took our place. Remember, Joseph and Mary were told, you'll have a son, you'll call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And if they wondered how he would do that, all they had to do is flip back to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, tells us how. For he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Amen. Jesus would be pierced for our sins. His hands pierced, his feet pierced, his spirit crushed. Why? For us, because of our sins. He took our place. He was our substitute. Jesus, because he was sinless, though, could suffer that punishment and then overcome it and rise from the dead. You and I could never do that, but Jesus did it. But, but, but don't dismiss the, the fact that he, as a man, he suffered the consequences of our sin for us. It's this, it's this idea called substitutionary atonement. He took our place. People don't like to think that that was needed, but Scripture says it very clearly that Jesus took our place. And when he did that, Satan's grip on us was released. The darkness has no longer a hold on us. Darkness creates fear. Most of us are afraid of the dark. I remember when I was a little boy, I always had to sleep at night with, the, with our bedroom door cracked open just a little bit because I wanted the hallway light to shine in. For some reason, that was such a peaceful thing to me to have a little glimmer of light. Now that I'm older, I don't like lights coming in the room. But as a kid, I did because I was afraid of the darkness. Darkness is fearful. My kids experienced that. Uh, when they were young, we took them to Disneyland, to our, yeah, Disneyland in California. And of course, we go on all those uh, monotonous rides like the spinning teacups. And then uh, it was kind of cool going on the Pirates of the Caribbean cruise. That was cool. But I wanted them to experience Space Mountain. Now, Space Mountain is a roller coaster in a dome, and they make it dark and put little lights on the dome to make it feel like you're flying through space. It's, it's really awesome. And it's, oh, kids, you're going to love it. You need to experience it. We're at Disneyland. And um, it didn't help that Julie said, I'm not going on that ride. <laughs> so it was really hard to convince the kid that they were, kids they were going to love it. They weren't quite convinced, but they, they trusted that dad's with us. We'll be okay. And there's this long line. It takes about an hour. And we finally get in our cars. We take off and we enter into this dark uh, dome. And, and you can't see the track in front of you. You have no idea if you're turning left, right, up, down. You have no idea. It's wild. It's crazy. You hear people screaming. I hear my kids screaming. You know, people are having a ball. I think they are. They're not screaming because they're having fun. They're terrified. <laughs> they're terrified. Dad, get us out of here. You know, I just had to try to keep them in the car the rest of the journey because they were so traumatized by it. By the time we came out of that dome, Julia's waiting for us. The car slides up, tears running down their face. <laughs> they go dashing toward her. They're mad at me now. Kind of ruins the rest of the day. I'm the evil guy. You know, darkness is frightening. We don't know where to go. And you know what? When you live in darkness, and that's a description of the pre-Christian life, if all you ever do is live in darkness, you, you don't know what it's like to live in the light. You don't know. I've never seen the light. I don't know what it's like. And so you live this life thinking this is the way it normally is. But then you come into the light and you go, oh my goodness, I didn't know life could be like this. 
Like, oh, wow, I can see things I could never see before. I understand things like I never could before. It's because I've come out of the darkness and into the light. Satan likes to keep us in the darkness. And when you're in the darkness, you trip a lot, you stumble. There's fear. But in the light, you can walk securely. You see how things fit together. And God is trusted because now I see, now I get it. God wants to break this grip that Satan has over us. You know, when the gospel was preached to the Gentile world, the Gentile world was described as as people living in darkness. And so as Paul preached this message of Jesus, he said it was to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's what the gospel does. It takes us from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Jesus frees us from the from the grip of the devil. He has, he has re- or delivered us from the domain of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, the kingdom of light. So now we are children of light. Ephesians 5, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So that grip is released. We can come out of the darkness into the light because of what Jesus did for us. And then we have the assurance that God is with us. God's presence is assured. God's presence is assured. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Rick, I think, uh, said something that resonated with a lot of you. He talked about the song, Two Tickets to Paradise. And some of you said, yeah, I remember growing up in that era with the music. And well, I want to take you back to the 70s too, because that's my era. Uh, laying in bed, I had the, my radio next to me at night, tuned into a Chicago radio station, WLS, listening to the rock music, pushing my little recorder there for, for my cassette to record the popular songs of the day. But as I reflect back, I remember some of the songs that I really liked were so depressing. One is the loneliest number. All by myself. And then Janice Ian, I mean, oh, at 17, it's such a pathetic song. Like, oh my goodness, it's so lonely. I don't want to live anymore. And then uh, what's called actually the, probably the most depressing song of all time by one group. It was, it was uh, Gilbert O'Sullivan's song, Alone Again, Naturally. Now, if you can understand the lyrics and actually look at those, it is, it is a really weird song. It starts off with him saying, you know, if, if I would treat myself and go to a tower and jump off and splat my body on the concrete so everyone see how brokenhearted I am, they would understand that's how I feel inside. Because, because he was left at the lurch at the church. His fiance didn't show up and, and got humiliated and people kind of trickled out of the service. Now, I'm not doing the lyrics like the song, but that's really the story. And then at the end of it, there's this, this, this sorrow about each of his, his father dying and then his mother dying. And oh man, this guy's so lonely. But right there in the middle, he says this, but as if to knock me down, reality came around and without so much as a mere touch, cut me into little pieces, leaving me to doubt, talk about God in his mercy. Oh, if he really does exist, why did he desert me? In my hour of need, I truly am indeed alone again, naturally. Now, the truth is, a lot of people really feel that way. They got left in the lurch. They, they had a relationship break off. They got rejected and neglected. And there's this pain and this, this same kind of cry. Why in my hour of need did God desert me? Why would he do that if he's a merciful God? And that may be where you're feeling today. Like, God, I don't understand what's, what's going on in my life. It, it feels like you're so far off. Why is that? But Scripture reminds us in the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but in the 13th chapter, he says this, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, he's taken him back, 
taking the readers back to the Old Testament, when God was bringing the Israelites into the promised land, Moses came to the people and he says, you're going into this land and you're going to face these enemies, then you have to possess the land. But I will be with you and I will not leave you or forsake you. And then he speaks specifically, Moses speaks specifically from God to Joshua and says, Joshua, you're going to lead these people, but I'm going to be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. It's been a theme of scripture. God wants to be present in our lives. And this verse is a very powerful verse because you don't get the full meaning of it in the English, but in the Greek, it's the strongest kind of negative you could give. It actually literally means something like this. I will never, ever, ever leave you in dire straits because it's not just leaving someone and deserting them. It's actually in their moment of great need. It's when they need you, which is when it's most painful. Like, why would you leave me when I needed you most? Why, when Jesus is on the cross, would God leave him when that's the time he needs him most? Why? He says, he'll never do that to you. Those times you feel like I really needed God, God says, I, I, I promise I'm not going to leave you. I'm there with you. I'm going to help you through this situation. My grandson, he's, he just turned eight this week. He loves to play hide and seek. Now, our house only has so many hiding places. And I figured he'd probably memorize them all by now. But I'm always kind of creative, and I find some new little way to hide from him. So, so I'll hide. And, I'll, and sometimes I'll hide where he'll find me easy, but then other times I'm really going to make it hard. So I'll hide somewhere. He looks all over, checks doors. I deceive him by creaking doors and then running to another place and hiding. And he's looking all over. He's checking the refrigerator. He's looking in the dryer. He's looking under tables. Curtains can't find me. And then, then you hear this, like, desperate cry, Baba? Baba? I don't answer. I'm hiding. Baba? And I'll go, Aiden! And I hear this pitter-patter feet through the house. You know, he, he, yeah, he knows I'm here. He's, he's, he's there. He didn't leave because, you know, kids have trouble with time. So, I don't know. Maybe he died. I don't know. Maybe he left the house. But you know what? Once he hears my voice, it all changes. Like, ah, he's here. Good. I just, I, I know, I know he's somewhere here, but he's here. He, whew. Uh, so, you know, sometimes when you feel like, where's God? I can't see you, God. All you need to know is God, hear, hear that little voice saying, I'm here. Okay. Okay. It's going to be good. We're going to get through this. Because you're not going to see God physically. But God gives you his voice through scripture to say, listen, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I haven't gone. You may not see me now, but I didn't go away. What do you do? Because believers often feel this way, like, oh, but I feel so far from God. I feel like he's, he, he's forsaken me. I'm going through this really dark time in my life, and I just can't feel the closeness. Well, let me share with you some reasons why that might be. First of all, it could be that you don't have a relationship with him to start with. Now, God is near to us to some level, near to everybody, because he's trying to reach people. But, but the last kind of thing is they got to reach back to him. It says in the book of Acts that God's not far from anyone if they would just reach out. So God's close. But you may feel like, oh, I just don't feel that connection to God. Oh, maybe you're, you've never surrendered to him and become his child. That's key, because God's promise is for his children. And maybe that's where you are. Like, I need to give my life to Jesus to have that assurance that he's with me always, that he died for my sins, that I am forgiven, that, that my connection to, to the Lord can be permanent. So 
So if you are a child of God and you experience these feelings, let me just tell you, feelings can fool you. They're not good fact checkers. Because you can feel this way, and the truth may be this. We felt that we've done that many times. Feelings are good. It's not like feelings are evil. It's just that feelings have a different purpose. Feelings can motivate us. They can comfort us. They can, they can motivate us to do things, but it is not a good arbiter of truth. Your feelings don't tell you what is reality. Sometimes we feel things that are so, so awful, but they're not true. And so we need to know what's true. Now, what's true? God's word is true. What God said is true. But it's more than that. It's more than that. It's more than just knowing that, that God says, I'm here for you. Because there are people in our lives, and you probably experienced this as I have. Someone will say, I love you. And you need them to show it. Because the words aren't enough. And let me tell you this. When we say, I believe the Bible because God said it, I believe it not only because God said it, but God showed it. When God says, I love you, he says, you know how I love you? I sent my only begotten son that while you were still a sinner, he died for you. I said it, I showed it. God does both. That's why we trust his word, not our feelings. Our feelings can come back into, into line with God's word. Sometimes you feel forsaken um, because you've sinned. And I feel like God's mad at me because I've blown up for the upteenth time. And that's you pulling away from God, not God pulling away from you. God's already shown he loves sinners. So he doesn't love you less because you've sinned, but he wants you to come and confess it, bring it into the open, deal with it, come back to God. But he's not turned his back because you sinned. He never did that in the past. He's not going to do that in the future. Your sin's been covered through Jesus. Maybe, possibly, for some of us, you're going through a time where it seems like God is so far because God says, it's been too easy to trust me. When everything's going well and falling into place and prospering, your business is doing well, your marriage is doing well, your health is, is great, everything's like falling into place. You go, man, God is great. He's worthy of praise. And God says, let's see how much you trust me when your prayers don't get answered. How much you trust me when you don't get the thing you tried out for. Uh, let me see how much you trust me when it, when it doesn't feel right. Uh, let's see how much you trust me when, when people now are against you, not for you. And it's that time where you then step back and go, God, I still trust you regardless. I trust you anyway. See, God wants our faith to be in him, not in how we're feeling. Not in just the good things. Sometimes we get so discouraged. Well, I'm not going to trust God now because I feel terrible. It's the worst time to walk away from God. That's when you need him the most. And let me just ask you too, are you taking care of yourself physically? Because your physical being has a connection to your spiritual being. If you're not eating well, if you're not getting rest, if you're not taking care of yourself, it truly can affect your emotions. But it doesn't change who God is or his promise. Never will I leave you or forsake you. I want you to, um, to say this out loud with me and to say these words, you will never leave me or forsake me. I want you to say it, wait, I want you to say it to the Lord, okay? And if you're home watching this online, would you do this well out loud? Let's say it to the Lord. You will never leave me or forsake me. Let's say it again. But this time I want you to emphasize the word you, Okay. One, two, three. You will never leave me or forsake me. That sounds good, doesn't it? Let, let's do it again. This time I want you to emphasize the word never. Okay? One, two, three. You will never leave me or forsake me. Wow, never, ever. Let's do it one more time. And this time I want you to emphasize the words twice, me. Okay? Okay, one, two, three. You will never leave me or forsake me. 
It's not just super Christians who get this promise. It's every single child of God. That's you. God is faithful to his word. And you know, I think if you would stop and look back, especially if you're a believer and look back in your life, you can reflect back at moments when you were in the darkness of your life, in the pain, in the rejection, when you felt other people have forgotten me. You said, but God, you didn't. You didn't leave me. You didn't abandon me. In my greatest hour of need when everyone else did, you didn't. And I praise you for that. And, and if God has done that in the past, he's going to do it again. He may not feel that way at the moment, but he will. That's the kind of God he is. So here's what I want you to do. Just take the next two minutes. Just look back. Go on a journey. And say, God, that, that verse is true. Because I remember when. And then you go back to when. And you say, God, you were there. And then, God, I remember this when you were there. God, I remember, I remember when I went off to college and felt all alone. You were there. And God, I remember when I went through my divorce and I felt so rejected and, and you were there. And I remember, God, when I lost my mom or my dad and I felt so alone and you were there and got me through it. I want you to go back and revisit those times. And then, just like Psalm 22, the way it ends, say, God, once again, you will deliver me. Whatever I'm going through in this season of my life, you will be with me. You will get me through. You will bring me to the other side. For your promise is true. You'll never, ever leave me or forsake me. So take a couple minutes, reflect. And for those of you who have never surrendered to the Lord, this is a good time to say, Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner in need of a a Savior. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I want to live for him. If that's a decision you make and need to make, let us know after service because we want to talk with you. We want to help you get, get on your journey. We want to even set up your baptism so you can just make that a public confession before your church family. So let's just take these next few moments and um, reflect on the God's presence in your life and praise him for it. Oh, great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, unto me, a sinner who's failed, who turned away from you, and yet who was loved in spite of all that. That you would send the king from heaven to come and take my place. I cannot fathom that. I cannot fathom love like that. And Lord, that's why we would never give our child for someone else and allow them to die and pay someone else's penalty. You loved us and we're willing to give your one and only son. Thank you for that. Thank you that we are your beloved. 
And so, Father, I pray for those that are struggling this day, that you go with them in power and might. Let them see the light and the joy of living in your presence. Lord, help them to persevere through those times when it doesn't feel right, but it's true that you are indeed still with them as you've always promised. You never left them and you never will. Thank you, Jesus. If you agree, would you say amen with me? Amen. Amen.